Welcome to the Kim Switch Podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 18, Abortion and the Eyewitness of the Resurrection. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Campus Reach Podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Visit our website at flfnetwork.com. Um, we have a lot going on uh, culturally, evangelistically, ministry-wise, and everything else, but uh, welcome to this podcast. I'm sure you have a lot going on in your life as well, and thank you for taking the time to listen to us. Uh, this podcast on the Campus Preacher, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the faith. Over the last few weeks, uh, it seems that the pro-life movement has been making some strides and a couple victories and how symbolic they are and how realistic they are. I guess it's still up for grabs, and we'll see how a lot of this stuff ends up uh, getting played out. Uh, so I want to talk about that a little bit today, um, because I don't spend tons of time on campus talking about it, but it does occasionally come up. And then I also kind of uh, maybe brush on, finish up the idea of early eyewitnesses to the resurrection and how that relates to our apologetic. Um, so before I get into that, I do want to get into um, the idea of abortion, because as I mentioned, I don't spend uh, tons of time on that issue on campus, but over the past six months, it's come up uh, quite a bit. And I think it's just one of those things where we, you know, we're clearly right. I think uh, all you got to do is uh, look at a ultrasound. I think of years ago when I was working in New York City, a friend of mine who was Jewish, um, his wife got pregnant and I was out to lunch uh, with he and another coworker. And he was talking about viewing the baby on the ultrasound. And he's like, man, it is really hard to still be against abortion. And it was kind of funny because the guy who was at, uh, I guess it wasn't funny, it's wicked, but the guy who was at lunch with us uh, who was not married, didn't have any children, uh, you know, as far as we knew, didn't plan on having any children. And uh, just how defensive he got over that issue um, was kind of bizarre that he wanted to maintain his position of uh, pro-abortion, didn't want to hear anything uh, contrary to it. And so I think when we get into it, we have to realize that that is the angle that a lot of people are coming in, and so it's not necessarily a reasonable discussion. Um, but I think if we can put forth the ultrasound, and we can, um, even if you, uh, on Facebook, Gabriel uh, has a picture of, uh, I think, a seven-week baby, seven-week fetus, uh, whatever word you want to use, and you're just sitting there going, man, we kill that. That's uh, that's insane. Um, but that's what we do. And when I'm on campus, it comes up, and you know, I, I, it's just because I think it's downstream type of issue from worshiping the living God. So uh, as I've mentioned numerous times on this podcast, I'm constantly trying to pound home that God is the author of life. And because of who God is, that's why we affirm life. That's how, why we have our views on sexuality. And the world doesn't worship the living God. They are kind of Moloch worshipers and worshiping idols and worship themselves and worship their careers and everything else. And so if something's going to interfere with that, uh, they want it out of the way. Um, and, and so, but when you begin to affirm that God is life, that's going to end up changing the way you view sex, which is going to end up changing the way you view abortion, obviously, as well. Uh, but one of the kind of uh, funny stories a few years ago, I was preaching on a campus in uh, Southern California, and there was a pro-life group on campus that day, and they had their, their big signs of aborted babies and everything else. And, and so they were probably a good 50 yards away from us. And there was this long walkway, and it, the, the walkway comes to kind of a, it's not really a quad, but a little bit more of an open area before you get into the library. And so, yeah, they're 50 yards down this walkway from us. And uh, outside protesting them are a bunch of uh, college girls uh, who are feminists. And being the feminists that they are and 
uh, letting everybody know that it's my body, my choice. They decide to go topless for the day. So uh, as you walk by, uh, you have, say, 10 pro-life guys and a couple girls with their big posters and everything else in kind of a grassy area. Um, then you have police standing between them and maybe, say, 20 feminists, and maybe maybe eight or nine of them didn't have their shirts on, and uh, written on their bodies was, my body, my choice. And so they're taking on the pro-lifers with that. So I'm uh, down the ways a little bit, talk, preach with my friend Sean, and so I'm up there preaching, and we have a pretty good crowd going, have a pretty good interaction going, and uh, next thing I know, we've got these two girls showing up without their tops on, and uh, so I'm just kind of ignoring them, and eventually they just start peppering with abortion questions, and I, I'm like, look, I don't spend a lot of time on that issue. Uh, the issue is whether or not you're worshiping God. If you girls begin to worship God, uh, your views of your body are going to change, your views of sexuality is going to change, your view of abortion is going to change, so I'd rather spend more time on uh, the issue of, of who is the true God and whether or not you guys are worshiping him and serving him, and, uh, but they just kept peppering, 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 and uh, I, I finally, uh, I don't remember exactly 100% how we got there, uh, but this is almost verbatim what I said as, as I look like I told you I don't spend that much time on this issue. Um, because ultimately, the way I look at it, if your kids are going to turn out like you guys, just go ahead and kill them now. Just kill them now. That's the best thing for our culture. And uh, and fortunately, uh, the crowd who had been there for a while understood it was being a, a tongue-in-cheek comment, and uh, most of them laughed, but the, two, the, the girls who were contesting my presence on campus and just the, the pro-life aspect there. They got all mad at me and they're really, really angered. And uh, one of them ends up saying, you, 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 you effing Nazi. And I said, well, you're the one killing your kids. And then from there, everybody laughed again and uh, they walked away. And so, so that's one of the things that we, you know, to an extent, have to feel comfortable with is rhetorically, um, what's interesting, and in I've kind of used that rhetorically a couple times on campus since, and it's interesting to me because suddenly it's almost like people want to be pro-life. Um, the minute you go ahead and just tell them, nope, go ahead and just murder your children, kill your children, that's the best thing for our culture, um, they, they kind of shrink back from their position, and it's almost as if they um, want to uh, you know, kind of def- start defending life. So the couple times I've done that, I, I found it kind of interesting in um, the, the reaction I get. And granted, you know, that's not normal conversation you can just drop at lunch with your coworkers or something like that if that issue comes up or for happy hour you're out with your coworkers and uh, you tell them to go ahead and kill their children that's not the way to do it but when uh, me preach on campus I have a certain liberty with some of my language uh, that I feel comfortable using uh, and saying something along that lines um, but one of the other things I wanted to brush on with the uh, abortion topic and one of the things I, I couldn't get a hold of the original article um, but Peter Singer who is considered by, I don't know how he's considered one of the best ethicists, but he's at least one of the most well-known. I don't know if best is the right word. Uh, and he's at Princeton University, and he's wicked uh, is what he is. But in uh, 1995, I believe it was, he wrote an article entitled, It's Not Always Wrong to Kill Babies. And he basically makes a case for uh, abortion in that article uh, and, and why basically why it's not wrong to always kill babies. And on his website, though, he has um, kind of a, a fact, a Q&A sort of thing. And um, I want to brush on some of the things that he says because I think this is pertinent to our discussion on abortion. And uh, what we need to do – so even, even in the real basic, when, when, when it does come up, and I do push, um, I just try to emphasize, look, I, I almost universally say, look, I agree with you. If your position's right, all it is is a clump of cells and it's not a life, 100%, go ahead and abort it. Um, but I ask you if you just put yourself in my shoes. And rhetorically, we have to do that sometimes. And uh, I, I know it's all always, you know, 
when these debates come up, it's easy to be emotional and push. Um, but one of the things I'm trying to get them to do is, is just put themselves in my shoes. And like, if you put yourselves in my shoes, um, and you view it as life, what do you think should be done? And just getting them to even articulate in some way, shape or form your perspective, rather than just getting to the choice thing, rather than just getting to a woman's thing, just asking them, look, can you place yourself in my shoes? And it's really crass, and he used some pretty vulgar language, but if you know who the comic Louis C.K. is, and it's uh, at least as of a week ago, it was still online, if you Google Louis C.K. and abortion, um, the opening of his uh, comedy act on, I believe it was originally on Netflix, uh, should come up and you should be able to see where he is uh, talking about abortion. He's able to do that. He's able to, um, you know, put himself in the shoes. Like, why would you mock pro-lifers? They, uh, you know, they think you're killing babies. They think babies are being murdered in there. And uh, he's like, and people are like, oh, I can't stand those people. I can't believe they'd be out there. They think you're murdering a baby. Um, and yeah, he says a couple things and, and he kind of mocks uh, the crowd when they cheer at certain points uh, for abortion. It's kind of interesting. So uh, that that's worth checking out. But I wanted to look at this. Uh, Peter uh, Singer on his fac it says this. You have been quoted as saying, killing a defective infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Sometimes it is not wrong at all. Is that quote accurate? And he says, I did write that in the 1979 edition of Practical Ethics. Today, the term defective infant is considered offensive and I no longer use it, but it was standard usage back then. So, so think about this for a second. Uh, Peter Singer's, uh, he, you know, I realized defective infant is offensive language. I'm not going to use that nowadays, uh, but go ahead and kill it. Now, how out of control is our culture that we're worried about the language you use, defective, uh, uh, defective infant? I won't use that anymore, but I'm still going to go ahead and affirm uh, the killing of it, of that, you know, whatever you want to call it today, retarded baby, not retarded baby, healthy baby, whatever uh, defective infant, whatever term you want to use, let's get caught up on uh, what term you're using and ignoring the fact that we're killing it. And his basic argument is that, look, I use the term person one way, uh, and he says it's, it's referring to a person who's capable of anticipating the future, of having wants and desires for the future. As I have said in answer to the previous question, I think that it is generally a greater wrong to kill such a being than it is to kill a being that has no sense of existing over time. And so, uh, you know, a child comes out of the womb, he doesn't have really a sense of existing over time up to, say, 20 days, 30 days, 40 days, so go ahead and kill it, is basically what Singer is arguing. And one of the things I found helpful in discussing these issues is bringing out men like Peter Singer. And uh, he, his, you know, his fact is worth going to and having this in your back pocket. So when you're, and so when you're sitting there and talking to uh, the pro-abortionist and trying to get them to say, all right, so when, at what point do you say it's no longer okay to kill a child? Um, and, you know, in New York, the state of New York, it's basically nine months. And that's becoming the, the standard issue of the Democrats. And so there, there's a lot there. But uh, have Peter Singer in the back of your head and uh, look him up. And I think he's pretty helpful in the in the, the abortion discussion. Unfortunately, um, Louis C.K. as persona non grata with his whole sexual uh, harassment or whatever exactly he did uh, thing. So you know he's not always as useful as a Peter Singer. But trying to get them to articulate when it's no longer life. So when I'm on campus, I always ask Peter Singer. And, and originally, I read and this is going back 15 years. So I could be wrong on the the number of days. I thought Singer said that go ahead and kill up to 21 days. That it's a viable option to kill the baby up to 21 days. So when I'm on campus, I bring that up. Uh, so Peter Singer, Princeton University. And I always like to nettle the kids a little bit. Uh, you know, this, we're not we're not talking 
we're not talking a community college. We're talking Princeton University. We're not just talking about a state school here in Missouri. We're talking about Princeton University. I mean, top shelf stuff. And the, the students usually get, why, why would you, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? But uh, uh, so anyway, Peter Singer is a well-known guy. 21 days, go ahead and kill it. Uh, do you guys agree with Peter Singer? No? Okay, why not? And then make them begin to march back and articulate when they think it's a child and begin to push down on that point. And uh, so, so the two-step on abortion, get them to step in our shoes, ask them to articulate our position from the standpoint that we believe it's life. And if it is life, can you see why we think it should be protected? And, and the best you can, getting them to articulate that change their mindset a little bit, and then from there, getting them to articulate when when they want to start protecting life and take an extreme thing like Peter Singer in our culture, and then uh, working backwards. Um, so uh, oh, one, one other thing on his fact, it says, uh, what about a normal baby? Doesn't your theory of personhood imply that parents can kill a healthy, normal baby uh, that they do not want because it has no sense of the future? And he says, most parents fortunately love their child and would be horrified by the idea of killing it. And that's a good thing, of course. We want to encourage parents to care for their children and help them to do so. Moreover, although a normal newborn baby has no sense of the future and therefore is not a person, and is therefore not a person, a newborn baby has no sense of the future and is therefore not a person, that does not mean that it is all right to kill such a baby. It only means that the wrong done to infants is not as great as the wrong that would be done to a person who was killed. But in our society, there are many couples who'd be happy to love and care for that child. Hence... Even if the parents do not want their own child, it would be wrong to kill it. Um, don't really know where he gets the conclusion. It would be wrong to kill it. Um, but, you know, that's where Peter Singer, ethicist at Princeton University, is coming from. So enough of the abortion thing. Uh, the idea, even in this apologetic, is that we're going after the idea of uh, life. And we get that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the central element of our gospel and our preaching, and even when you think of the early church overturning the Roman Empire, it was through preaching the death, the burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and that he was Lord of all. And so in our apologetic, that's what we should, the best we can, spend most of our time on. And I may mention this last week or in the past, I was actually talking to someone about it today, so it's fresh in my head. But when we, what, you know, again, I'm sympathetic to the presuppositional apologetic. Uh, I'm going to say that often just because I assume most of you are probably sympathetic to that outlook. So I'm not jettisoning it, but what I've generally found on campus is that the argument for the historical res- uh, evidence for the historical resurrection of Jesus is the most intuitive uh, thing that makes the most sense. And uh, even from there, persuasive, it also gives you the opportunity to throw out little bones culturally that women were the first witnesses um, and things like that. And you know, that's not to mock. I, I think that's part of what the Lord uh, did was that he had women be the first witnesses uh, to the resurrection um, as part of kind of uh, you know, introducing a new faith that was introducing a new world that was going to overturn the Roman Empire. So we want our apologetic to constantly be about the resurrection. So even when you meet people who say they have left the faith or something like that, you can just ask them, so do you no longer believe in the resurrection? All right, so why do we uh, believe in the resurrection? Obviously, uh, because the Bible teaches it. Um, that's kind of simple and straightforward. But when you talk to somebody who's an outsider and they ask you, why do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Um, I believe that we can uh, you know, work with them, pointing out that Jesus of Nazareth existed, fact one. Fact two, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Uh, we get that not only from the scriptures, uh, the gospels, not only from Paul, but we also get this idea from uh, Tacitus and Josephus, who were early, uh, they weren't eyewitnesses to it, but they're all early historians that were testifying to that. And then what we have coming in on the heels of that is that a group of Jews began to proclaim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
Now, the believer and the unbeliever both have to explain why the church is there. And what we're seeking to do is, you know, when you look at the, our options, what makes the most sense? Does some sort of uh, drug-induced vision make sense? Does something else make sense? And what I want to argue is, uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, uh, Paul says to the Corinthian church, I pass on to you that which is the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised up on the third day according to the Scripture. Then he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the Twelve, uh, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Uh, does he mention James in there? I'm, I'm trying to turn there. Um, and he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Um, and so, and and granted, there. Uh, then he appeared to James, uh, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. And so if you get into uh, you know, the basic Greek, and if you were to pick up a commentary on 1 Corinthians 15, what they will tell you is that this is an early creed. And uh, James Dunn, who is a, um, not necessarily an evangelical um, in the way that we would understand the term, but he's yeah, has at least marginally conservative, I guess, in, in terms of scholarship, but he's a, a well-respected uh, New Testament theologian. And he, in part, would argue that this creed was probably structured about six months after the resurrection of Jesus happened. So very, very early on, uh, this event happened. Uh, th- th- this creedal formula that Paul is passing on, that which is of first importance, uh, that which I received, um, I preached. Um, this is probably going back uh, to about six months after the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul's writing the Corinthian church about 55 AD. Jesus was crucified roughly around 30 AD. So that's a 25 year gap. That's really, considering the first century, that's really not a huge gap. So 25 years later, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he's passing on that which the first importance Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised up according to the scriptures. Um, now, depending on when you want uh, Acts 9, when Paul was converted uh, to have happened, um, you're, you're going to uh, maybe get some slightly uh, different math than this. But in very simple terms, I believe that Acts 9 was roughly two years um, after Pentecost. So let's just say Jesus died in AD 30. Uh, Pentecost happens in AD 30, and probably about 32, the Apostle Paul is converted. So Acts 9 happens uh, two years after that. And so we have the letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians. So think about this for a second. And, and, and here's even one of the things, when you're studying the Bible, uh, there's a bunch going on. Uh, you know, when you become an evangelical, oftentimes you study it in terms of um, quiet times. And so when you're reading Galatians, you're not totally reading it just for terms of history. Uh, or when you're reading 1 Corinthians, you're not just reading it necessarily for uh, terms of history. You might be trying to get a historical context of what's going on in the church, uh, but you're, oftentimes we approach it in terms of uh, trying to derive spiritual truth, uh, which is appropriate, uh, in, in depending on how we're using those terms. But in a very basic sense, um, Paul's writing a historical letter to a historical church. So if something, I'm in Moscow, Idaho right now, and if something's going down in the state of Moscow and someone writes me a, an email or a letter or even in response to this, uh, there's a very specific historical context. And we'll be talking about spiritual things and truthful things, um, but it, it's, they're not just little quiet times. So if you have a problem with something I say tonight, you s- send me a letter. Um, kind of like when Paul was writing the Corinthian church, he was addressing issues going on in the church at Corinth. He wasn't just uh, writing them a book for quiet times. And and so I'm sure many of you know that, but it's just kind of something important to keep in mind. So again, just try to get this basic timeline before you. If you have a piece of paper before you, put AD 30, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, AD 55, uh, the, the, Paul's letter to Corinthians is written. So back that up. 
take 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. That's a creedal formula. James Dunn says that it was probably written about six months after the resurrection happened. Uh, so going back to Galatians chapter 1, uh, you have the Apostle Paul saying in one eighteen. then after three years, uh, this was after his conversion, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him for 15 days. And so in AD 35, the Apostle Paul meets with Cephas. And so if you think about it for a second, you know, what are they getting together and talk about? They're talking about the gospel. Um, and he says, uh, but I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the, the brother, uh, the Lord's brother. And then if you jump down to chapter two of uh, Galatians in verse, uh, well, in verse one, it says that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet, because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in and spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you." And from those who seem to be influential, what they were make no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, uh, when they uh, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel and then circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, uh, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked with us, uh, worked with also through me for mine to the Gentiles." Uh, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. Uh, so just kind of, put again, putting this on a timeline, Paul's converted in AD 32. AD 35 is the first time he meets with Peter. Uh, 14 years later, so about... Um, 49, uh, Paul meets with them again, and John, uh, Peter, and James, and Paul all agree that they're preaching the same gospel, which is ultimately centered on the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and the, the purpose in all of that, I think, is pretty simple and straightforward. It is this idea that very, 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 very early on, um, these men were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that, but we're, I'm, I'm, the reason I'm emphasizing this is in terms of our apologetic to an unbeliever. And again, ask them to explain these facts. Do they just think Paul is flat out making these things up? Do, you, do they think that Paul is just flat out making up, meeting up with Peter? Um, and, and so we believe these things, we trust these things, and we know these things to be true, uh, but we're dealing with those who are outside of us. And so the, the issue, I think, time and time again is constantly ask them, what's the best way to explain these facts? And um, there's, there's a book... Um, by a guy named Thomas Kuhn called The Structures of Scientific Revolutions. And the basic idea of that book is that scientists work and operate in the world through a paradigm. And there's a dominant paradigm that governs science for a period of time, and everybody kind of accepts it. And uh, eventually there becomes these anomalies uh, that have always been there, but they begin to arise and kind of push the system. And someone comes along and uh, questions how these anomalies are, then they kind of uh, re reconstitute science with these anomalies and, and there's a radical paradigm shift that happens and uh, there, there's a, a scientific revolution that takes place at that time. 
And so part of what we're doing in calling somebody to repentance and presenting these facts to them is, is along these lines. We, we th- I believe that these facts present anomalies to their ideas. And when we keep pounding home the resurrection and asking them to explain what happened in the first century, um, what we find, or what I've found in general, is that people really don't have good answers. And you realize how desperate they become. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a couple of the things that they come up with to escape the idea that the resurrection happened. And this is going to manifest itself in things like the copycat religions. You've probably heard this, that, uh, you know, the, when spring happens, there are resurrections of many, Osiris and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so we're going to look at that and uh, maybe one or two other objections over the next two weeks. Um, but I think what we have here, if you've been following the last few weeks, we have uh, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9. We have the fact of Jesus' existence, the fact of Jesus' death, and now we have the fact of a very early uh, witnesses, Paul, Peter, James, John, all claiming uh, Jesus has raised from the dead within six months of the crucifixion. And so what made that happen? I think the most reasonable explanation is he really rose from the dead and the apostles experienced him. And Paul experienced them, Peter experienced them, James, who denied them, John, all these men experienced them. Uh, I think that makes the most sense. So next week, we'll look at like some copycat religions, and uh, uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we can do that one week. Maybe we'll do it in two weeks. Uh, so yeah, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations regarding anything I've said, feel free to contact me at uh, Campus Evangel on the Twitter or Keith at CampusPreacher.com, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can Cause the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in the land